Now, if you've been in any church for any length of time, I'm sure that you have uh, often heard Christians use the, the term a calling. We speak of a calling, that we're called to do this or that. Uh, I've told people many times that when I was 13, God called me to be a missionary in Africa. Uh, maybe you've heard people say that we are called to share the gospel. In some churches, you might hear preachers say that uh, we've been called to have health and success and prosperity. Uh, others might say that we are called to rise up and take dominion and authority over all things. We like to hear about that kind of calling. That, that makes us feel good. But I wonder, how many times have you maybe heard a friend say, you know, I really think that God is calling me to suffer right now. To submit to my horrible boss. Wait, come again? <laughs> Kids, have you ever heard a friend say, school is so boring and my teacher is so mean. She gives us so much homework. But I really think God is calling me to keep showing respect to the teacher, to not complain, and to just suffer well in this situation. You'd be like, bro, what, what, what language are you even speaking right now? I don't, I don't understand. But Peter, in our passage this morning, says that we are called to something. In verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called. What is this that Peter says we are called to? Well, to answer that, we need to first go back and review where we've been in this, in this uh, letter from Peter, and then we also need to see where we're going. We've already seen that, that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has given us a living hope and an inheritance. We are to set our hope fully on that grace that will be brought to us in the end. So live holy lives now because God is holy. Jesus has been established as the cornerstone, and you as God's people are living stones built upon him. You are the temple of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And as priests in this world, we are to live and conduct ourselves in such a radical, Christ-like way that it puts the foolish God-haters to silence. But not only that, we are to have our good works on full display so that the world would see them and even glorify God. Now, one of these radical ways in which we do this is through submission to authorities, which we heard Tate speak about two weeks ago. If you were not here, which is most of you, I think there was like 10 people here that Sunday, uh, but if you were not here, I, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that message because uh, a lot of what he covered applies to this passage today. So I'm not going to rehash everything that he said. But we heard that we are to honor and submit to every human institution. And Peter shows what that submission looks like. First, towards the supreme authority, which is the emperor in his case. And then he goes on to the ruling governors. Then he addresses household servants in our text. And next week, we'll see that he moves into the household. And from there, then he moves into how we are to treat one another in the church. So from the largest human institutions to the smallest ones, Peter is making one unified argument that we must submit to authority as we do good works that glorify God 
no matter what type of authority we are under. Let's look at that. Uh, Peter introduces this, this whole section in verse 12 when he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works, or excuse me, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So these are good deeds, good works that can be seen by others and which result in God being glorified. And then when speaking of our submission to government, he says this in verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now in next week's passage, Peter is addressing wives who have unbelieving husbands and tells them that they identify with Sarah, the wife of Abraham, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And now we come to today's passage, where we see that sometimes when we do these good works, we will suffer injustice because of them. Verse 20 says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we see here that this is a specific type of suffering that Peter's dealing with here. He's not talking about just suffering from sickness or suffering the loss of a friend or suffering because you had six weeks to prepare a sermon but only really started a week ago. True story. Now, this type of suffering comes from doing something that is good and right, yet suffering injustice because somebody did not like that good thing that you did. And so that begs the question, in the context of this passage today, why would a servant suffer for doing good? Well, again, I think it all has to do with the type of good that Peter is referring to here. He's not suggesting that a master would mistreat his servant if, for example, the cook had made him a great meal or if the nanny had protected his child from some kind of danger or harm or if the gardener had planted the most beautiful flowers in the garden. No, that is not what Peter has in mind here. He's talking specifically about Christian good works that are done for the glory of God. I think that becomes more clear when you continue reading into chapters 3 and 4, where Peter continues with this theme of suffering for doing good, especially when he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you will be blessed. Why did I change the words around there? Because try saying righteousness's sake 10 times fast. And he also says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we're talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness and your good behavior in Christ. So these are not just general good deeds. These are good works done in Christ for the glory of God. And when we do these good works, we have to realize that some authorities in this world are simply unjust. They do not acknowledge God, nor his goodness, nor his commands. So when they see followers of Jesus acting like their master, they stumble over that cornerstone of Christ. Because of their sinful minds, 
They falsely interpret our good works as evil, and they persecute us instead of having the correct response, which should be to glorify God. So for these servants, that may have looked like refusing to worship the household idols. Perhaps it was obeying the Lord's command to gather with other believers and being away from the master's home. Or perhaps it was refusing to do some kind of sinful task that the master wanted done. Now, they, of course, would have, uh, they would have disobeyed their master in these ways because they were obeying a higher authority, which is God. And this is the same reason why we would choose to disobey an authority when it would require us to go against what God has clearly commanded. But regardless of of the specific reasons, we know that these servants and the other exiled Christians that Peter is writing to were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They were in a foreign land and a foreign society that most likely did not welcome them and certainly did not appreciate their beliefs. So it's very likely that for a huge portion of these Christians reading this letter, their lives are filled with suffering on multiple levels. You realize that even to this day, in many places around the world, there are Christians being hunted down and killed for their faith, simply because they follow Jesus. And we certainly do not uh, experience that same level of suffering or persecution or injustice in our context today. In fact, we, we really have it pretty easy most of the time, don't we? However, we, we do experience a taste of this kind of suffering. The teacher who mocks you in class for saying that God is the creator of all things, the unbelieving parent or spouse who treats you harshly for being so committed to your church family, the boss who demotes you or even fires you because you shared your faith with a coworker. And if you would permit me to stretch this just a little bit further, I think that in the way that today's world works, the opinion of the masses on social media is viewed by the world as an authority, whether we like that or not. So when you get mocked and slandered and ultimately canceled because you spoke up for Jesus and for biblical truth, you are suffering this kind of injustice. Now, you may have gotten canceled simply because you said something dumb, (laughs) so don't confuse the two. But if we are serious about following Jesus, sharing the gospel, and doing these good works that glorify God, we will almost certainly suffer for it at some point in our lives. Now, I want to be clear and say that we are not called to go looking for suffering, but we are called to suffer well when we do encounter it. And this is what Peter is referring to when he says, for to this you have been called. So what should our response be when we are persecuted, when we suffer injustice for doing what is good and right and holy? We are to look to Jesus and follow his example of suffering as we are empowered to do so by the gospel. The suffering of Jesus provides the pattern to follow in our suffering. Now, in the immediate context here, Peter is telling these servants to follow the example of Jesus in their suffering. 
But I think it's very evident that Peter is taking this example of how Jesus lived and responded to suffering, and he is giving that to all believers, not just servants, but to those who are citizens, to those who are servants, to those who are wives, and then to all believers who are in fellowship with one another. I think this will become uh, even more apparent as we continue on in chapters 3 and 4. But for that reason, I want to focus the majority of our time today not, not looking uh, too much into the servant-master relationship, but in doing what Peter instructed us to do in this text, which is to look to Jesus. After all, if we are called to follow his example, we need to know what that example is. And so Peter mentions four specific things that Jesus did not do and one thing that he did do while he suffered. First of all, he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus literally faced every type of temptation that we do, even the temptations we feel when we're suffering at the hands of someone else. Yet he was without sin. Jesus passed the test. Jesus finished the race. Jesus acted righteously in every situation. He is the standard, the example to look to. No, we are not sinless, but we are still called to follow his sinless example. The second thing that he did not do, he did not lie. Jesus did not shy away from the truth or tell half-truths in order to get out of suffering. When the chief priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He answered him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He answered truthfully and honestly, even though he knew it would cost him his life. Now think about this for a moment. This is Peter writing this. Do you recall what happened to him on the night when Jesus was arrested and taken before the authorities? Peter was asked three times, hey, aren't you with Jesus? Yeah, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And how did Peter respond? I tell you, I don't even know this man. Three times Peter was asked about his association with Jesus, and three times Peter lied in order to avoid even the possibility of suffering alongside of Jesus. His fear of suffering led him to lie about his Lord. Peter is saying here, guys, don't, don't follow me. Don't follow my example. Don't look to me. Look to Jesus. He did not buckle under the pressure of suffering. He told the truth about himself until the very end. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He also did not retaliate. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. The word revile, it means to insult someone in an abusive or angry way. And Jesus certainly suffered angry and abusive insults on top of all of the physical abuse. During his trial, false witnesses came and accused him of doing things he had never done. The governor's soldiers stripped him of his clothes put a robe on him, made a crown of thorns for his head, 
They, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Do you realize that Scripture says they did this in front of a battalion of soldiers? That's around 600 other soldiers. Jesus was their entertainment for that night. Imagine the humiliation. Others blindfolded him, spit on him, slapped him, and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? While hanging on the cross, the Jewish leaders, along with others passing by, mocked him, saying, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down off that cross. And yet, through all of this, Jesus never once hurled an insult at anyone, never spoke one word of slander to any of his accusers, never showed anger towards those who were causing his suffering, even though he would have had every right to do so. And again, and again I wonder if, if Peter perhaps has in mind his own act of retaliation. Do you remember that, the whole ear incident? The last thing that Jesus did not do is that when he suffered, he did not threaten. He was beaten whipped and crucified, but never threatened to do any harm to his abusers. He literally had huge, sharp thorns jabbing into his scalp all around his head. He literally had huge metal spikes driven with a hammer all the way through his hands and feet. He was scourged on his back by a whip that had multiple shards of metal or bone on the ends in order to dig into and rip open his flesh. And yet not once during this insane amount of pain and torture did Jesus look up and say, I'll get you back. You'll pay for this. He truly suffered in every way imaginable physically, emotionally, socially, yet he did not threaten. Now, when we talk about the sufferings of Jesus, there are two huge questions that come to mind. First of all, why? Why did Jesus suffer so much? Why did he endure so much suffering? And then how? How did he do that? Let's first answer the how. How did Jesus endure so much suffering? The easy answer, and the one that I think many Christians would give, is, well, he, he was God. He was divine. So, of course, he could do that. But that is not at all the answer that Scripture provides. Over and over again, the biblical authors point to the fact that Jesus did everything that he did filled with the Holy Spirit or led by the Spirit, and that he was in constant communication and relationship with the Father whom he drew his strength from. He did this to show us how we are to live as his followers, to follow the pattern of his life. So Jesus endured his suffering, not by playing his divinity card, but by continuing to entrust himself to him who judges justly as Peter says in this passage. And this is the key to understanding all of Jesus' suffering. 
This is the one thing that you simply cannot miss in this entire passage if you are to suffer well like Jesus. You see, Jesus' confidence was not in the idea that justice would come from some higher-up government authority. His hope was not that his followers would overthrow the government and set things straight. His confidence was in God, his Father, because he knew that perfect justice is in his hands. He will one day set everything right. Every wrong will be justly punished, and every right will be justly rewarded. The evildoer who got away with it will no longer escape justice. And those who have done what is right and suffered because of it will be lifted up and given the very kingdom of God. Listen to what Jesus said to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You remember that earlier in his letter to these exiles, Peter points them to a future hope and a future inheritance, but now he is also pointing them to a future justice that will be theirs. All of this is to encourage them to remain faithful to Christ and to continue loving and serving one another as they demonstrate their good works in Christ to the world, even in the midst of suffering. You see that even in this future, this future justice, even the slave who suffered the most harsh treatment will see a great reversal happen in the end. The slave who trusts in the one who judges justly will be glorified and exalted to reign with Christ while his evil master will suffer the justice he deserves as he pays the penalty for his own sins that he has committed against God and his fellow man. He reminds us that our exile will come to an end and your suffering will end along with it and you will receive justice. Okay, so now the why. Why did Jesus suffer so much? Why did he endure it? Why did he put up with all the suffering, the mockery, the physical pain, the sorrow? The answer is again found in our passage. He did not suffer just for the sake of suffering. His suffering served a purpose. He suffered for you that we might die to sin and live to righteousness so that he could bring us, the sheep going astray, back to the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus' suffering was the completion of the work he came here to do, to rescue you and me. And in the same way, when we suffer, we do not suffer without purpose. We suffer for the sake of the gospel, when you suffer for doing good, it is for the purpose of shining your good gospel works into a dark world. It is showing the world a life that has been radically transformed by Jesus to the point where you're willing to even lay down your life for this message of grace and so that others might hear it. And so in following the pattern of Jesus' suffering, we find not only purpose that gives meaning to our suffering, but we also find the power 
to endure in our suffering. You know, it's, it's easy to talk about suffering when we aren't currently suffering. It's easy to think that we would stand firm and, and uh, be strong in the face of persecution or injustice when it comes. But <laughs> i tell you what, you put me under that kind of intense pressure and, and I quickly start to grow weak. All that resolve that I had to stand firm seems to melt away really fast. Your willpower, your convictions, your determination will only get you so far in the face of suffering. We must have something more than that. The power to weather the storm of suffering does not come from within you. You are not the hero of your story. Peter reminds us in verse 24 that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Imagine the, the slave hearing those words. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What sins did Jesus bear in his body? Which sins are we now called and empowered to die to? Retaliation, reviling, and revenge, vengeance, victimization, and violence, deceit, discontent, and despair. These are the common sins that we are so easily tempted to fall into when we suffer injustice. But all of these sins and more, Jesus took upon himself at the cross, but he didn't stop there. He then gave us his own righteousness, as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the power to endure and even thrive under the weight of suffering is found only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he has freely given us. He is the only one who is strong enough to endure every temptation we face and yet remain sinless. So what do we do when we feel like giving in to temptation, to retaliate or to retreat? We cast our sin and our temptation on Christ. We declare that he has already dealt with them at the cross and we rest in his perfect righteousness. We leave the results up to God trusting that he has a purpose in all things and that he will right all wrongs in the end. And I also believe that when we do this, there is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that takes place, giving us the strength we need at just the right time. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, my friends, let's, let's talk application. How does this apply to you and me? If you're like me and you've been a Christian for quite a while, talking all about the sufferings of Jesus can it really can become cliche and commonplace. 
I mean, it might bother us a little to hear of the things that, that Jesus went through, but quite frankly, most of us have heard that whole story of how Jesus suffered so many times that we've almost become desensitized to it. But even if it does still affect us, even if we do still see and feel the horrific injustice that was done to Jesus in his trial and crucifixion, it's still, if we're honest, we'll admit that it still does not bother us to the same level as when we suffer injustice. You see, we all have a strong sense of justice, don't we? Now, kids, are you still with me? A sense of justice you might not understand, so I'm going to call it something different. I'm going to call it a fairness alarm, okay? And we all have these from a, a young age. I mean, just watch any group of kids playing any sort of game for any amount of time, and inevitably you're going to hear the word sooner or later, that's not fair, right? We have these fairness alarms, and they can detect all sorts of injustice, like when one person breaks the rules for his own advantage. When the person in charge uh, favors one person above the rest of the group, even though he hasn't done anything to earn it. When somebody else does wrong and gets away with it. Or when somebody does right and gets punished for it. That one really bothers us. So in all of these types of situations and others like them, our fairness alarm goes off. And we say, that is just not fair. But do you know the time when my fairness alarm goes off the loudest? It's when somebody does something directly to me that isn't fair. In fact, my fairness alarm is way louder when something unfair happens to me compared to when that same thing happens to someone else. You know what I'm talking about, right? To, to show you what I mean, I'm going to have a kid come up here and get this piece of candy. The first one who can come up and get this can have it. Waiting. You're like, wait, we can do this? I'm waiting. No, 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 no. <laughs> come on. <laughs> There we go, Cam. All right. Okay. Wait. Well, you can stay down there. You don't have to literally come up here. Okay. So you were first? Okay. Well, I think I'm going to give it to Ian instead. He was second. Right? Because Jesus said the first will be last, the last will be first. Sorry, buddy. No, no. Hold on. Stay here. Stay here. Stay here. You, can, you can sit right there. Now, for all of you other kids who are sitting there thinking, wait, he was serious? And for all of you adults sitting there thinking, I can't believe he's doing this on a Sunday morning. I have a question for you. Was that fair or just? Was it? No, of course not. So in your head right now, that fairness alarm is going off. But, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe it's like a 4 or a 5, but not really... Not really enough to, to say anything or do anything about this injustice, right? But for Cam, his fairness alarm is like at a 10 right now, right? I mean, he's, he's like, hey, a major injustice has just been committed, and you need to do what is right and give me that piece of candy that you promised. 
Okay, I've got another one for you. There you go, bud. Thanks. Now, why did I point this out? Because it's, it's really easy for us to detach ourselves from a passage like this and just say, yeah, I, I know Jesus suffered. He suffered injustice. I've heard that a million times. And, and these people, these were ancient people living in an ancient time. Their problems are totally different than mine. So if we are not careful, we can read, we can read about the, the worst injustice that the world has ever known, the crucifixion of our Lord, and our fairness alarm barely even goes off. But in my little world, when something unfair or unjust happens to me, that alarm is so loud that I can then use that to justify whatever type of behavior that I want. I could fire back insults at somebody on social media who slandered me because, well, they started it, and I need to prove to everybody that they're wrong. I can fly an obscene flag from my truck and call the president all kinds of disrespectful names because he took away some of my freedoms. Can you tell I live in battleground? <laughs> I, can, I can abruptly leave a church and take as many people with me as I can because the elders didn't handle my situation fairly. But the truth is, that these words from Peter are not only for those ancient exiles in those ancient times, but also for us modern exiles living in these modern times. In chapter 4, Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, and that is more true now than it ever has been in history. And this letter is more applicable to us today than we might think. So if you say that you are a follower of Jesus then you have a high and worthy calling. That calling is to follow the example of Jesus in his suffering of injustice. Remember that it is his glory and his reputation that are at stake, not yours. But we also have to understand that this example of Jesus' suffering, it comes right in the middle of Peter's instructions on submission. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject to the emperor. Be subject to his governors. Servants, be subject to your masters. And now look to Christ. And then right after this, wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll admit that this, this idea of continuing to submit even while we are suffering it sounds ludicrous to us, especially as Americans. I mean, we love stories of rebellion against authority, don't we? I mean, if, if you pay attention to, to popular movies and shows, you'll see that uh, the vast majority of them have some sort of theme of the main character rebelling against an oppressive authority so that they can go and live their own truth, follow their heart, and live their best life now, happily ever after. These are the stories we love. But, but you're telling me that I need to submit to a tyrannical, corrupt government? Well, yes, that's exactly what Peter was telling 
these Christians to do in the Roman Empire. You mean that I should continue to respect and submit to my boss who's a jerk and disrespects me? Yes, that that is certainly implied in this master-servant relationship. You mean I'm supposed to listen to my parents even though they aren't fair? Yes, you are. In fact, I want to I want to talk to the teenagers for just a minute or anybody anybody who's maybe about to become a teenager soon. I want to tell you a little secret about your parents. They aren't perfect. You're like, uh, yeah, duh, I already know. <laughs> That's not a secret. But, you know, your parents are going to make a lot of mistakes. They are going to be unfair sometimes. They're going to say things that don't make any sense to you. They're going to tell you no at times when you want them to say yes. They're going to ask you to do things that you think are stupid. And I'm not even talking about the bad parents right now. Even the really good ones are like that. But whether you have good parents or bad parents, if you feel like you are suffering under their authority because they are just the worst, I want to ask you this. How is the example of Jesus shaping the way that you relate to your parents, the way that you think about them, the way that you talk about them with your friends? Remember, guys, that Peter is talking to servants here, some of whom are, are being mistreated. They are stuck in a really, really bad situation. If anyone had the right to rebel against their authority, it was these servants who were being mistreated by cruel masters, and yet Peter's instruction to them was to be subject, to submit. These servants were certainly not living their best lives now, and yet they were a beautiful picture of Jesus that pointed their masters and others to the gospel. But keep in mind also that, that Peter has just told these exiles that no matter what their circumstance is in life, they are a free people. Verse 16 said, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So even if you were the slave of an unjust master, you could live as a free person. This is because the freedom you have in Jesus Christ far surpasses any other freedom that you can find in this world. In Jesus, we have freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from shame, freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, and a future promise of freedom from pain, sickness, and all suffering. We will live forever as free people in God's kingdom. Now, before we finish, I do need to address something very important here because I do not want anyone hearing this to think that Peter is telling wives that they must stay with an abusive husband or that you can never quit your job where you have a horrible boss or that you should never seek help if your parents are abusive to you. I also don't want anyone to think that, that Peter is approving of the institution of slavery. Now, slavery was already discussed in detail during our series in Colossians and Philemon, so I'm not, I'm not going to delve into that topic right now. But I do want to talk about staying and suffering in an unjust situation versus getting out of that situation. There are, se there are several examples of both of these in Scripture, but I'm going to mention just one of them here 
in order to help us understand why and when we might choose either path. I think the most helpful example is Paul. If you read in Acts 16, and then also in chapters 21 through 26, you'll see different times when Paul used his Roman citizenship in different ways. The citizenship gave him certain rights that most people throughout the Roman Empire did not have. That's because most people who were under the control of Rome had been conquered by Rome, and so they were not given the citizenship. And that would have applied to these exiles that Peter's writing to here. So it was very rare for a Jew like Paul to have citizenship. But you see that sometimes he used that to avoid being beaten. He would get out of a beating or sometimes uh, even to be freed from prison when he was imprisoned unjustly. But then you'll also see him use that same citizenship or sometimes just even like fail to mention it altogether. And that leads to him receiving a beating or getting thrown in jail. One time you see that he's in jail and he he uses his, his rights as a citizen to appeal to higher and higher authorities as he shares the gospel with each one of them. Even when those authorities all agreed, he could have got out of prison a long time ago if he hadn't done that. So in some cases, we see him choosing to escape suffering and in other cases, choosing to endure more suffering But why? I think it's clear that his highest priority was not his own comfort nor his safety, but rather the advancement of the gospel. Whenever he saw an opportunity that might require suffering, but would result in the gospel being advanced, he chose that Christ-like path of suffering the injustice and laying down his rights as a citizen. If the suffering did not advance the gospel, he would use those same rights to avoid the unnecessary suffering. So, do you have the right to quit your job and get out from under that boss? Yes, absolutely, and sometimes you need to do that. Do you have the right to vote against that politician who's abusing his power or move to another state where he doesn't have authority over you? Yes, of course you do. Should you consider leaving that church where there is spiritual abuse coming from the leadership? Yes, you definitely should. But in some situations, could God possibly be calling you to lay down your rights for the sake of the gospel and to be an example of suffering like Jesus to others? Perhaps we've never even considered this. We also see an example in the life of Jesus on one occasion, there was an angry mob who was about to throw him off of a cliff, but he slipped away and escaped. Why? Because that suffering would not have accomplished what Jesus had set out to do. It would not have furthered his purposes of redeeming sinners and establishing his kingdom. But of course, we know that when his time did come, Jesus did not shrink back from suffering. He took the beatings, he heard the insults, he disregarded the shame, he endured the cross so that he could bear our sins, die our death, heal our souls, give us his righteousness, and lead us to the great shepherd. He had a purpose that was far greater than his own protection, his freedom, his rights, or his life. And this is why Peter can admonish these Christ followers who are living in in exile to continue submitting to authorities, not only to the good ones, 
but also to the bad ones. He can tell them to continue being mindful of God whenever they suffer injustice. That this actually pleases God when they suffer for doing good. He can call us to this radical, countercultural way of living because we have the example of Jesus who suffered the worst injustice the world has ever known for us. And we are empowered by his righteousness and by his spirit to follow in his steps for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen to these words of comfort and hope that Peter leaves with these exiles at the very end of his letter. In chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us to suffer well? As difficult as that is to pray, we ask that you would do it. Because when we suffer well, we are an example of Jesus' sufferings. I pray that the world would see how we suffer even as we continue to submit, sometimes to unjust authorities. And I pray that the world would see those good works and glorify God. Lord, would you do this in us? We are powerless to do this in ourselves. So would you fix our eyes on the example of Christ who suffered and suffered well who lived the perfect life, who died our death, and rose again to empower us to follow him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Parents, at this time,